Good morning. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling God, dwelling of God in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Again, uh, before we jump in, as Jay prayed, I wanted to just mention uh, early this week, Alan and Laura Tysinger, Laura's mother passed away. Her name was Mary, and uh, she lived in Waco for many years. And uh, funeral or memorial arrangements are coming, but just keep the Tysinger family in your prayers. And then this morning, uh, Jonathan Bindo, our director of youth ministries, his sister, who's had an ongoing fight with cancer. Gloria, what was her name? Desiree passed away. And um, so please pray for the Bindos as well. Jonathan is on a flight to Hawaii where she lived right now. And uh, I assume the funeral will be in the next few days. So uh, please care for those people in our church family through prayer and maybe asking them if there's anything that you can do to support them, uh, et cetera. So uh, we love both of you families and uh, our condolences are with you. Two words, two words that describe what so many of our current cultural struggles seem to be about are these words, identity and belonging. Identity and belonging. Who am I? Identity. And who are my people? Belonging. These are critical questions that we obsess over today, and rightly so. We're made in God's image, but we've lost our way through sin And of course, one of the ways we see those critical questions popping up is through art, through pop culture, through music. It's all over current music. Lady Gaga, probably her most famous song, is called Born This Way. And that song is all about identity. Be who you're made to be, and whoever you're made to be is who you feel like you are. So live your truth. Taylor Swift is another example. She has a lot of songs about this. One of her early songs is called A Place in This World. And uh, it's a song about her longing to find her purpose and her people. I'm just a girl looking for her place in this world. My daughter's not here today, so please tell her that I used Taylor Swift in an illustration. She'll be happy. Uh, And, of course, my favorite singer-songwriter is a guy named Jason Isbell. If you don't listen to Jason Isbell, you should. And he writes beautifully about belonging and about identity. One of his best songs is a song called Alabama Pines, and it's all about his longing for home, his longing for belonging as he finds himself living in a truck in a parking lot. Here's how he opens the song. I moved into this room, if you could call it that, a week ago. I never do what I'm supposed to do. I hardly even know my name anymore. When no one calls it out, it kind of vanishes away. And I can't get to sleep at night. The parking lot is so loud and bright. A single person cold, but I can't say the same for me. I've done it many times. Somebody take me home through these Alabama pines. Home. Belonging. We all want it. We all long for it, for our place in this world, for knowing who we are. Here in Ephesians, Paul has just erupted our categories of identity and belonging. In chapter 2, he has written that our identity has been irrevocably altered 
through Jesus' work for us. If you've trusted Jesus, you are no longer, Paul says, dead in your sin toward God, but you are in Christ. You've been raised with him. You've been seated with him. But there's more. We saw last week, verses 11 through 18, tell us that we have a new family, a new humanity. We belong now to a new gathering of people whose relationships with one another used to be marked by hostility, but now are marked by peace. In Paul's context, that was largely manifest through Jews and Gentiles, but it can be extended to black and white, to slave and free, to male and female, to rich and poor, to successful and powerless. All are now in Christ a part of this new hope-filled, peaceful society that we call the church. Paul's said that when you connect to Jesus in faith, your identity changes. You're now defined by who he is, not who you are. And your belonging changes. You're a part of his people, the church. So this morning... Paul continues by wrapping up chapter 2. And in these verses, he speaks more about identity and belonging. These verses are loaded with imagery, with imagery about who we are. And that's why I've titled this series, Who is the Church? These verses tell us. Paul gives us three images or metaphors to tell us who you are, who the church is, and each one grows in intensity. Here are the images. They'll serve as an outline for us. If you're a Christian and a part of Jesus' church, Paul says you are first citizens. You're citizens. Second, you are family. And third, you are a building. Citizens, family, a building. Okay, let's look at those. First, Paul says you are citizens. Verse 19, he summarizes here what he's been teaching all through this chapter. He tells us what we once were before we knew Jesus. Jesus. Look at what he says. Before we met Jesus, verse 19, we were strangers and aliens. Those are synonymous words, basically, that refer to a a cultural, linguistic outsider. They refer to someone who is a foreigner in a land, not his or her own. Someone who is an immigrant. How many of you have ever been in a foreign country and felt like a complete outsider? I know some of you have. I remember a number of years ago, we had some close family friends that went for a vacation in Mexico. And uh, as they were getting ready to return home, they got into the air, got to the airport and were about to board the plane when suddenly uh, police came storming through the airport terminal and stopped and arrested who was then their 17-year-old son because he was being accused of a violent crime that he had committed while they were on their resort in Mexico. They arrested him, put him in handcuffs, and took him into custody. And these parents of course, were completely flabbergasted that this could happen and shocked that it could happen. And it began what was a months-long legal process to eventually get their son back. And one thing they learned very quickly is because they weren't citizens, because they were foreigners, they had different sets of rights and no ability really to trust that the legal system would work in their favor because of their status. 
That was the status, Paul says, of virtually any Gentile before coming to Jesus with regards to God's people. We were strangers and aliens, but now, he continues, through our union with Jesus by faith, even though we Gentiles were formerly outsiders to God's promises, we now leave our outsider status and become, he says, fellow citizens, citizens with the saints. That word citizen was a loaded word in the ancient Roman Empire. You may know that being a Roman citizen entitled one to special privileges. In fact, at other parts of the New Testament, Paul, we see him using his own Roman citizenship to his advantage. For example, in Acts chapter 16, Luke tells us that when Paul and um, Silas were on a missionary trip in the city of Philippi, they were arrested for preaching the gospel because it affected the city economic. Amazing story you can read about in Acts 16. They were eventually released because the leaders of Philippi found out that Paul was a Roman citizen and they were afraid that they had mistreated him because he had a certain status. And Paul at the end of Acts 16 makes, makes them apologize to him for their mistreatment. Citizenship gave one status. It gave one rights. And so Paul is saying that the reality of our identity and the reality of our belonging have changed through the gospel. When we trust in Jesus, And when we enter his church, we become citizens of a new nation, citizens of a new city. We have all the rights of citizenship in the greatest kingdom the world will ever see, the kingdom of heaven. Paul puts it very bluntly in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens. Now listen. One really important truth that we can take away from this idea about who we are as a church is that the church transcends. It crosses over earthly citizenships and earthly boundaries. We talked about this a little bit last week and we see it more here. Our allegiance and our affiliation is primarily if we're Christians with the kingdom of God. With the heavenly Jerusalem, not with primarily any earthly nation. And if you're a student of history, you'll know that Christians in history have very regularly, too closely associated the kingdom of God with the work or borders of an earthly nation. This happened in the Middle Ages with the functional union of the power of the church and the state. It happened during the period of Western colonial expansion. And it still happens today, by the way. In fact, there's been a recent revival of this sort of false teaching of of an over-association of the kingdom of God with earthly kingdoms. And some are dubbing it Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. You may have heard that term before. You may have seen it online somewhere. It's rising again, actually, right now in America, because many in America who claim to be Christians see, rightly, by the way, that Americans, American Christians are losing their sway in culture, and so they adopt the policy that the answer to that is to regain political and cultural power. And so Christian nationalism takes the name of Christ and closely associates it with the worldly political agenda is the program for every true believer. 
Now, Paul's saying, and the scripture everywhere says, listen, that is wrong in principle. No matter what the agenda is, because only the church, which transcends earthly and national boundaries, is authorized to proclaim the name of Jesus and carry his standard into the world. It's one thing to be a patriot. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your country and thankful for your country. What's wrong is when you associate your country with God's kingdom in a one-to-one correspondence. Paul's saying, no, your primary citizenship is now in heaven. So... Paul says we're citizens. The church is transnational and transcultural always. Our identity and belonging is that we're a part of the heavenly kingdom. Look at what he says in the second part of verse 19. This is the second idea. We are family. He immediately transitions. He says we're not members of the household of God. Do you see the increased intensity and intimacy of that metaphor? We're not just... Citizens under God's rule, but we are members of God's own family. Can you believe that? We're not just citizens under God's rule. We're members of his family. In Jesus Christ, we don't just find a city. We find a home. Marilyn Robinson, the great novelist, has a great definition of home. She says, home is where they will always take you in. Home is where they will always take you in. And we all know that intuitively, don't we? A home is not just a physical space that shelters you from the elements. It's a place of belonging, isn't it? A home is a place for you to be you and and to receive love. It's It's a place of refuge, a place of protection, a place of authenticity and honesty. A home... It's supposed to be a safe harbor from the winds and the waves of the world. Think about when in your life you've had a real tangible, palpable sense that you're at home, that you belong. For me, the thing that always comes to mind is the first time I came home after I had gone away to college. I'll never forget this. It's so vivid in my memory. I had been gone for a couple of months and I made the long trek from Waco to Amarillo. And I remember turning in my car onto my home street and seeing my neighbor's houses and pulling up along the side of the road in front of my house. And my dog came running out the door to, to greet me. And I saw my street and, and my room, but, but the moment was especially memorable when my mom came out and, and welcomed me and, and gave me a big hug. The smell of my mom's hair, the smell of my mom's hair in a hug, that was home. That was belonging. And, and that story, I hope, gets to the heart of the idea. Listen, it is God's home that we belong to. God is with us. He loves having us in his home. That's how God feels about you. Listen, before we come to know Jesus, we're all spiritually homeless. We're all spiritually homeless, but in Jesus, we find our home. We find our belonging in God himself. We just sang about this earlier, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our home throughout all generations. The human heart 
is only really at home with God. Graham Greene, the great Catholic novelist, once wrote this. It's a strange thing to discover and to believe that you are loved. When you know that there is nothing in you for anybody but a parent or a God to love. Among other things, this reality impacts the way we should think about what we're doing right now, here this morning. Listen, the most important thing about church is not how you feel about church. The most important thing about church is not how I feel about church. The most important thing about church is how God feels about church. God loves having you in his home as a part of his family, meeting with him, eating with him, celebrating with him. It's like a grandmother who loves a full house of her children and grandchildren at Thanksgiving. All the family is there together celebrating. God is building his house, the church, so that he can enjoy and celebrate with and love you, (laughs) his entire family. God looks forward to church. God looks forward to church. And God is not a passive bystander right now in what we're doing. He's not waiting to see how it's going to go before he wades in. He's dwelling with us. This is is sacred stuff we're doing here, people. This is a blood-bought family we see here. This is an ongoing miracle, the church. Doesn't that change our expectations about church on a Sunday morning? Jesus is going to be here, guaranteed, irrespective of how you feel, of how you think, or of what firestorms have been caused in your life already this morning. Jesus is here and he's going to meet with us. So maybe you should come expectantly asking, how does Jesus want to meet with me today? We're walking that cannot fail. Amen. The church cannot fail. Praise God. We are God's family. We are family. We're citizens, we're family. Last thing, okay, we're a building. Verses 20, 21, and 22 are about. In fact, he says we're a holy building, a temple. Look at what he says, verse 21. We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. And this is the most intense of these three images. First we saw, right, we're a part of a kingdom which God rules. Then we saw we're a part of a family in which God is the father, But now we see that we're a part of the actual building that God himself dwells in. God is not just with us. God is in us. He's not just with us. He's in us. Let me show you three things about this point and then we'll finish. Okay, first, notice Paul says the house of God is built on, verse 20, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Some commentators who write about Ephesians say that those two types of people, apostles and prophets, are actually referring to the same group of people here. So they translate this, for example, um, apostles who prophesy. We're built on the foundation of the apostles who prophesy. 
Now, I think that's quite possible, actually, as an interpretation, but ultimately I differ. I take this uh, to refer to two different groups of people, the New Testament apostles and the New Testament, not Old Testament, the New Testament prophets. And what Paul means is that the building that is the church is grounded on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, okay? So what was their ministry? So an apostle, an apostle was one who was an eyewitness of what had happened to Jesus. Someone who had seen his life and his death and his resurrection and who later was given the task to proclaim what they had seen. The word apostle literally means a witness or a testifier. And so apostle's job was to witness to the gospel, to the Jews, and in the case of Paul specifically, to the Gentiles. And apostles did this both verbally through preaching and they did it in their writings, which we now call the New Testament. So the prophets would fall into a similar category. They were a group of people gifted to share God's revelation about the mystery that has been revealed, which is what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 3. So the New Testament apostles and prophets' job was to bear witness, to, to spread the word about what had happened. And that happened in the first century, and it's stored for us here in the Bible. So there are no more apostles today. Don't let anyone tell you they're an apostle what 220 means is that the church is founded on the apostolic and the prophetic message, which is the Bible, the scriptures. Side note, real briefly, as a point of application, that's why everything the church does should flow out of the teachings of the Bible. Um, our confessional statement, the Westminster Confession, uses helpful language. It says the Bible, as God's word, is the final rule or authority in both faith and practice. And so we make it our aim here to base our ministry priorities on what is prioritized in the apostles and prophets, on what we see now enshrined in the New Testament. The second thing I want you to see is that Paul writes, look with me, the building, verse 21, is being joined together. And verse 22, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you see both of those verbs there have the word together? By the way, those don't need to be there. Those don't really add much to our understanding, or it would have made sense if they weren't there. What Paul's doing is adding a little prefix to both of those verbs to emphasize the point of togetherness. And notice that they're present tense. These things are being built together. They're being joined together. In other words, the work of this building that is the church, Paul's saying, is ongoing. It's not yet fully completed. So what does all this mean? Here's what the Bible's teaching us. Our identity and our belonging as the church is an ongoing building project that is intended to be communal and not individual. That is it intended to be together and not isolated. Listen, the Christian life, by definition, is a communal life. We talk about this all the time here. And the reason is because it's all over the Bible. God inhabits us as bricks 
joined together, not as isolated individual building pieces. When my kids were younger, we loved Legos. How many of you kids have played with Legos, love Legos? A lot of adults raising their hands, yes. And we would get these thousand-piece Lego sets and just dump them all over the table. And they'd come out of all these bags, thousands of little, individual, isolated pieces. Have you ever unwrapped a massive Death Star Lego project? Um, it's so fun, by the way. And, and there's thousands of individual pieces. But the, the amazing thing about Legos is that they all fit together. Uh, it's super fun. And that image, I hope, helps you see what God wants us to understand. God is interested in you, in how you fit together with others. A Lego piece by itself has much less value except for you to step on and scream a curse word at night or for your dog to chew on and swallow, okay? Lego pieces alone aren't nearly as much value as when they're together. The sum of the parts is where the value is. So listen, Paul's saying, and the scripture everywhere says, that there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It's all this thing called Christianity together, together, that you can abandon God's people and just work on your own personal relationship with God by yourself is completely foreign to the Bible. You cannot be a growing Christian and have nothing to do with the church. God does not just want to get involved with you on an individual level. He wants to inhabit you as you place yourself in community. So listen. Listen, here's the question. Can you square the intensity of this communal image with the way you live in the church? Can you square the intensity of this image with the way you live in the church? This image of building, it speaks to how deep our relationships with each other should be. God inhabits us by the Spirit as we are connected together. So the deeper you get into the lives of each other, the deeper you get into God. And the deeper you get into yourself, interestingly enough. Last thing, most importantly too. This building has, verse 20, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Cornerstone. Stay with me, okay? That word cornerstone is a weird word. Very unusual word in the New Testament. And if you're a builder, uh, this word might make sense to you. I, as many of you know, am not a builder in any way, shape, or form. And so I had to think through this word a little bit. Apparently, the cornerstone, the cornerstone of a building determines the lie or the line and, and the symmetry and, and the structural integrity of every other part of the building, that, which is a great picture. That's why Paul uses it. He's saying Jesus in his person and in his work is the foundation of the entire edifice. Jesus is the one who keeps the building, us, stable. Listen to how Peter O'Brien puts it in his writing on Ephesians. He writes it this way. I thought this was a helpful summary. Christ is the vital cornerstone on whom the building is constructed. He is the one from which the rest of the foundation is built outwards along the line of the proposed walls. Accordingly, the temple is built out and up from the revelation given in Christ with the apostles and prophets elaborating and explaining the mystery which had been made known to them by the Spirit. But all is built on Christ, supported by Christ, and the line and shape of the continuing building is determined by Christ, the cornerstone. Because Jesus 
is the cornerstone, the church has its stability. Because Jesus is the cornerstone, the church as a kingdom, a family, and a temple building will not and cannot fail. We have identity and belonging by being built on Jesus. Let's close up by considering Jesus' foundational work. Jesus became a stranger to his father so that we can no longer be strangers, but citizens. Jesus left his father's home and was abandoned by his father for a time so that we can be sons and daughters in God's family. Because Jesus was orphaned, you can be adopted. Because Jesus was cursed, you can be blessed. Because Jesus was exiled, you can be brought home. Because Jesus, the real temple, was torn down in three days, you can now be built up as living stones and indwelled by the Father. Our identity, our belonging building rests upon the loving work of our Savior who gave himself for us and is now reigning over us. He himself is our peace. That changes everything. Let's pray.